It's been 15 years since 12-year-old Jalik Rainwalker vanished. His disappearance from rural upstate New York was ruled a probable child homicide. But no one has ever been charged, and his body has never been found. This is Rainwalker, the Lost Boy. I'm Jessica Marshall. And I'm Wendy Lepertor. In this podcast from the Times Union, we'll take a deep dive into this mystery, the case of a missing child that has unsettled New York's capital region and beyond for more than a decade. Episode 5, Black and Missing. Before we begin, a word of caution. The story we are about to tell involves situations that may be very disturbing to some listeners. So please take care as you listen. (laughs) Bubbly, energetic, adventurous. Gabby Petito wanted to share her life with the world. The search is on in the district for a missing woman. Her name is Chandra Ann Levy. She is 24 years old and hasn't been seen since April 30th. It's been close to 15 years since Beth Holloway first set foot on the island of Aruba looking for her daughter, Natalie. This is where... Every year, the National Crime Information Center releases statistics on the number of Americans reported missing. In 2021, the latest data they have released, there were just over 521,000 missing persons reports made. Of that, 64% are children ages 0 to 17. And of all the missing reports filed for children, 38% of those were for black kids. Just over 12% of Americans are black, according to the 2020 census data. And you know, we can all name the Gabby Petitos, the Natalie Holloway, the Chandra Levy's, and many more. But can any of your listeners name a person of color that has garnered the same level of national media coverage? They can't, and guess why? Because it doesn't happen. Natalie Wilson is the co-founder of the Black and Missing Foundation. She says only 7% of missing persons of color cases get any sort of national media attention. So we want our missing to be household names too. Natalie has a public relations background. Her sister-in-law, Derricka Wilson, is a former law enforcement officer. Together, they created the Black and Missing Foundation in 2008. These men and women that are going missing look like my siblings or look like my parents and my grandparents. They matter. Our community matters. Natalie says they work with families and loved ones of missing people of color. They help them spread awareness and communicate with law enforcement to keep their cases active. Visibility, awareness is key. Exposure for these cases, it's vital because it 
you know, alerts the community that someone is missing and we can help find them. But it also puts pressure on law enforcement to add resources to the case. Natalie says cases of missing black children are often treated differently by law enforcement, given less urgency. You know, sadly, um, or oftentimes when our children are reported missing, they're classified as a runaway and they do not receive the Amber Alert and they definitely don't receive any type of media coverage at all. Cambridge Greenwich Police initially treated Jalik Rainwalker's case as a runaway. They began to search for him on November 4th, 2007, more than 48 hours after he was reported missing. Jalik's adoptive father, Stephen Kerr, reported his son missing around 9 a.m. on November 2nd. He called Cambridge Greenwich Police to make the report. Stephen Kerr declined to speak with us for this podcast. Jocelyn McDonald did not respond to multiple requests for comment. But at the time, they told reporters and the police that they believed their son had run away. Here's Stephen speaking to a gaggle of reporters outside a few days after Jalik disappeared. If anybody knows what Jalik is, we'd really love any information. Or Jalik, if you're watching this, we'd love to, for you to come home and just try to figure this out. Jalik's adoptive grandmother, Barbara Reilly, was at her home in Winitskill, about 30 miles due south of Greenwich, when she got the call from her daughter, Jocelyn McDonald. It was late morning, early afternoon on Friday, November 2nd. She says Jocelyn told her Jalik had run away. It was a very unusual day, obviously. Barbara says she jumped in the car and sped to Stephen and Jocelyn's cabin outside of Greenwich. After she arrived, she says Jocelyn left to go pick up her other children. She said she had to take them to appointments. When uh, Jalik went missing and how you said Stephen was just walking around nonstop, you know, talking about food, Red Robin, Elaine Person. Well, he would be, um, uh, it was all about the food. It was all about how Elaine had invaded his personal space because he wasn't in the uh, car when she arrived with Jalik. Yeah. And then he talked about how um, Jalik must have gotten in with the several black uh, respite kids yeah. there, and they were. he must have run away to be with them. And then it was, um, no, he's probably become, you know, run away to be find his biological family. And then, no, it's... Um, he's you know he's ashamed and you know and so it was always trying to like find a way that he has left because he's ashamed or he's gone to a gang or he's right and then Stephen Kerr told the Times Union about a month later that he believed Jalik ran away to join the black community in Albany Schenectady or Troy 
the three largest cities in New York's capital region. All of them are within 30 to 40 miles of Greenwich. Stevens' exact quote, given to reporter Dan Higgins in 2007, was, quote, Every time we went through a predominantly African-American neighborhood, he was like a kid in a candy shop. Can we stop there and go shopping? I'm 100% sure he's in an urban setting within an African-American community, unquote. Barbara says she couldn't believe Jalik had run away. Whether it was to join a gang, to find his birth family, or any of the other theories her son-in-law was putting out at the time, it just didn't make sense to her. And then, suddenly, in the afternoon on November 2nd, just hours after he reported his son missing, Stephen said he had to leave to go to a friend's birthday party. And I said, well, I think somebody should be you know, talking with the police, going house to house, searching. Have you gone to the neighbors up here? And he goes, no. He goes, but I'm going to go to the party. And he left. Barbara says she couldn't just sit there. She felt helpless. So she drove to the police station in Greenwich to ask questions. Barbara wanted to take matters into her own hands. It was something she would do many times over the next days, weeks, and years. She was determined to find Jalik. I looked up online all the different things, the manuals for missing children and guidelines for what parents should do. And I had printed it out and uh, Jocelyn was reading it when she got there. And I said, well, you know, you need to make a flyer. So I looked up some photographs and Um, My husband started, you know, working on a flyer. Cambridge Greenwich Police Chief George Bell was notified that Jalik was missing on the evening of November 2nd. He was at a spaghetti dinner fundraiser at a firehouse when one of his deputies called. He later said he was told a 12-year-old boy ran away after a fight with his parents. He said as much to local television stations a few days later. Here he is on Albany's News Channel 13 on November 3rd. And he knew he was in trouble. He was confronted by his adopted parents about it. Parents say he'd spoken of suicide before. The so-called fight was the incident at Jalik's homeschool program. His parents said he verbally threatened a younger child. Former Times Union reporter Dan Higgins remembers many conversations he had on the record with Chief Bell about that particular night and about the days, weeks, and months after. He said that at the time, his belief was, you know, this is pretty typical. We get a a preteen. And then to hear George characterize it, I I remember his words uh, to an extent. He said, um, you know, had a fight with mom and dad, probably ran off to a, he said, maybe a girlfriend's house, um, you know, knowing nothing about Jalik. That was the speculation. Going off, running off to a girlfriend's house uh, or a friend's house, spending the night on the couch and he'll be back the next day. Higgins says Bell told him he'd seen that happen time and time again with kids throughout his decades-long career in law enforcement. You know, 99.9% of the time he was right about how these 
stories would play out. And this was a time when he concedes he was very, very wrong. George Bell died of a heart attack in 2018. According to his successor, Sergeant Robert Danko, Bell worked on the case almost obsessively till the day he died. I personally think it, it probably took a toll on him. I mean, there was definitely, you know, it was wearing him down, but I, he was constantly fighting. So, I mean, you didn't really see disappointment. You just saw him get back up off the ground and keep going. We'll be right back. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union member today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome back to Rainwalker, the Lost Boy. Tom Aiken was in charge of the New York State Police's Bureau of Criminal Investigation Unit in Greenwich in 2007. It was the morning of Sunday, November 4th, almost exactly 48 hours after Stephen Kerr reported Jalik missing. Tom had the day off. He and his then seven-year-old daughter were driving to the mall to go holiday shopping. His phone rang just as he pulled into the parking lot. It was George Bell. He was calling for help with finding Jalik. But he started out by apologizing to me um, and said that he should have called me on Friday when the complaint came in, but he thought it was just going to be a standard runaway or missing persons case when his officers got the call. Aiken is retired from the New York State Police. He lives in South Carolina now. He still does some work in law enforcement, and he keeps tabs on the Jalik case. He has a sharp memory of the case he worked on for many years. He says he recalls his first conversation with George Bell quite well. And so that's the way it started. He kept apologizing to me that he didn't call me Friday. I don't like to say this too much, but I think we would have had a better chance of immediately coming to a better resolution in this case if he did call us. Aiken says once the state police joined the investigation, they had to start from scratch. We can't just go by what was done at that point for the past three days. So we had to start over again. That meant starting with the crucial interviews. He says they interviewed Stephen Kerr and Jocelyn McDonald. They sent a team to talk to Elaine and Tom Person, the foster parents who'd provided respite care in the week leading up to Jalik's disappearance. They also sent a team to talk to Katie Bonesteel, the Red Robin waitress who served Jalik and Stephen food the night before he vanished. When we missed those three days, there were two full nights where Stephen was missing and unaccounted for Friday and Saturday night that was very difficult to get back. One of the major leads we did was we assigned to check every dumpster between Greenwich and Albany along Route 40 and the whole route down to uh, where he came from, and the Red Robin and everything else. Over the next two weeks, law enforcement combed wooded areas around Greenwich. 
They drained the pond at the Battenkill Country Club after Chief Bell said cadaver dogs, quote, went crazy near it. In the next few months and even years, they would search more ponds, forests, a turbulent stretch of the Battenkill River known as the Hellhole, and the Hudson River in Troy. I will say this was probably one of the most massive, extensive searches ever conducted for a missing person. There were teams of state police, other agencies, NCON, forest rangers, volunteers, fire department. Um, we, at one point, had the horse volunteer team from Texas come up and do searches. I mean, the sky was the limit. There were more searches done. My guys, when they had time, participated when we weren't doing other leads. It was one of the most massive, well-organized searches in history. Chief Bell and the state police said they followed more than 500 leads. They got tips in nearly every day for those first few months. They called in the FBI to help. They brought in the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children to help. They had dozens of volunteers eager to help with searches. And at one point, George Bell even consulted a pair of psychic intuitives. There was one source they say they expected to get help from, but did not. Jalik's parents. I've never met such a pair of parents that refuse to cooperate with law enforcement. That's George Bell talking about Stephen and Jocelyn on an episode of Find Our Missing from 2012. Police asked Stephen and Jocelyn to take polygraph tests in Albany during the week after Jalik's disappearance. Jocelyn did, and Stephen refused twice, while polygraph test results are inadmissible in courts. They're a tool that investigators say they use to help them throughout the course of their investigation. Stephen and Jocelyn deny they were being uncooperative. Stephen told reporters that they had nothing to hide. He said they made all of their personal information available to police. Phone records, credit card, bank statements, computer passwords. Stephen and Jocelyn said publicly at the time that they felt Stephen was being mistreated by law enforcement in the course of the interrogation. During the December 2007 interview with Albany's WTEN, Jocelyn described some of the alleged mistreatment. She said police were threatening her husband, goading him into confessing to the murder of his son. Stephen followed that up in the same interview, alleging that state police investigator Tom Aiken threatened to have Child Protective Services take the other children away if he did not consent to a polygraph test. Barbara really confirmed to us that some version of this happened. She says George Bell worked with CPS to give her temporary custody of the four other Rainwalker kids. The day that Stephen came back and would not take the lie detector test, oh. Chief Bell, to protect the children, mm -hmm. asked my husband and I, and went through CPS and gave us temporary custody. Oh. Jocelyn went ballistic. Barbara says the children were returned to their parents after 10 days. Tom Aiken wouldn't discuss anything related to the polygraph testing or CPS and threats to take away Stephen's children. I apologize, I'm not gonna say this a lot, but there's a lot of that stuff I can't get into while we're discussing this case. I will say, we did a very extensive background on Stephen Kerr. Because, you know, the state police came to talk to me. 
they uh, we sort of worked out a timeline and it, it seemed as if probably I had been talking to Stephen after he had left the Red Robin. That's Ananda Forrest. He was a friend of Stephen's back in 2007. His legal name was Emery at the time. He's currently a professor of liberal arts at the Community College of Vermont in Brattleboro. He called Stephen on his cell phone sometime in the 8 o'clock hour, the night of November 1st. He was returning a call that he missed from his friend earlier. Even though it has been 15 years since he made that call to Stephen, Ananda says he remembers exactly what they were talking about. Jalik. Stephen was asking him for advice on how to handle Jalik. He was calm, but he was concerned about where Jalik was headed behaviorally. You know, that he was becoming more and more of a discipline problem, and as he hit adolescence and the hormones got flowing. Ananda is really into shamanism and the power of spirit quests and sweat lodges. That's what led him to a friendship with Stephen Kerr around 2004. They met through a mutual friend. They had sons who were close in age. They'd planned a symbolic rite of passage ceremony for their oldest sons that involved a sweat lodge and a vision quest. Because adolescence is handled so badly in our society, you know, and kids usually have to initiate themselves and they, you know, it's the blind leading the blind. So we just thought we'd kind of create, and we thought we should start before they were 14, just so that they were used to the idea. On the phone on November 1st, Ananda says Stephen mentioned the incident at Jalik's homeschool, that Jalik had verbally threatened a younger child. I mean, he was just being, you know, giving very harsh clinical assessment of him. And I think as Jalik was beginning to enter adolescence, he, he was engaged in some kind, I think, of bullying or harassing of younger kids, and that bullying or harassing was beginning to become more sexualized. And I think it was really freaking Stephen out. And uh, so he and he was pretty angry with Julie. So he was just angry at his inappropriate behavior, angry that he wasn't responding. And it just it wasn't the way I would have talked about my son if my son had been in the room. I would I would have couched it more, you know, and yeah. it, was, it was very blunt. Ananda says the state police asked him to wear a wire and meet up with Stephen. He agreed to do it. My main reason to wear a wire was to collect clear evidence that uh, Stephen hadn't done it. He knew I had been with the state police because he called my wife and my wife had said he's with the state police. So the first thing he did is he patted me down. The state police guys, the troopers said, oh, no, he didn't feel anything. But I mean, I was just watching the Sopranos, you know, and when Tony Soprano was worried that one of his guys is wearing a wire on him, he patted him down exactly the way Stephen patted me down. He felt my chest, his hand went right on the unit. And so I thought, okay, he knows I'm wearing a wire. And uh, we went for a walk. And uh, it was a very strange conversation. Tell me about the conversation. Well, I think the things that were strangest about it, first was that he was being completely uncooperative with state troopers and and state police and and sort of treating them like they were the enemy. We're old hippies. Our politics were not anti-police, but not super cooperative. But when your son is vanished, they're your best friends. I don't care what your politics are. Yeah. And uh, so that was really puzzling. And he said, I'm, you know, I'm not going to take the lie detector test. And that seemed really peculiar. Uh, and, and then he sort of kind of went off on this tangent about, well, you know, I, I, not only will I not take the lie detector test, but I've hired the best defense lawyer in Albany. I mean, that made my me shivers and chills. Ananda says Stephen stopped reaching out to him after that meeting. 
They haven't spoken since 2007. He no longer considers Stephen a friend. Barbara Reilly says her husband Dennis recommended the criminal defense lawyer in Albany to Stephen, but she says they never hired him. According to Barbara, the lawyer told him to call back if he ever had a criminal case. Around two weeks after her son disappeared, Jocelyn McDonald asked her mother to stop looking for Jalik. My daughter then asked me, she said, Mom, go home, make pots, uh, you know, go back to your pottery and your friends and stop with law enforcement. Barbara says she told her daughter she couldn't do that. After Jocelyn asked me not to search and we had a discussion and I said, I've got to continue to somebody has to still search for him. A day later, one of her daughter's friends met Barbara for lunch. Barbara says the friend told her that her daughter and son-in-law did not want to see her anymore. They haven't spoken in the 15 years since. Stephen Kerr eventually stopped taking Dan Higgins' calls, too. There was a very brief window of opportunity where Stephen, I believe, would still take my calls, even though he had uh, shut out other media. But then, of course, um, I believe he either got tired of speaking to me or it was... After I, you know, confronted him and, and asked him point blank if he killed Jalik, you know, I think it was after that, that that he stopped speaking to me. Dan Higgins says it was around late December when he asked Stephen if he'd killed his son. Stephen told him, quote, no, I did not. But then he added, quote, I could understand how people picture me as the prime suspect. That is completely understandable, unquote. In mid-January of 2008, a little more than three months after Jalik vanished, Chief George Bell held a press conference. Law enforcement was releasing security camera footage taken from a bank on Greenwich's main drag in the early morning hours of November 2nd. It was footage of a van that matched the description of the one Stephen was driving earlier that night. It appeared to be the same make and model. Stephen Kerr told police that he watched a movie and went to sleep after he arrived with Jalik at the Greenwich house around 9 p.m. on November 1st. The bank's van footage was taken a little after midnight. We can't prove that it was the van belonged to Stephen. Chief Bell talked about it on Find Our Missing in 2012. The odds are of a van, the same make, model, and the same color being in the village of Greenwich at that time of night was, was like no and none. It had to be Stephen's van. It was at that point that law enforcement also announced that Stephen Kerr was a person of interest in the case. Person of interest is a term that carries no legal weight. It simply means investigators thought Stephen had valuable information that could lead to solving the mystery of what happened to his son. It could also mean they thought he was involved somehow, but Stephen was never charged with anything. 
Dan Higgins recalls a conversation with George Bell he had around this time, early 2008. He was very candid, and right off the bat, he told me uh, that he thinks Stephen had something to do with this. And again, it's it's this extreme candor that I was getting from Chief Bell and candor that I was getting from Barbara, really, which really uh, drew me to them and made me keep coming back for more and asking. I was expecting candor from Stephen and Jocelyn, and they just became more and more and more closed off. Higgins was also careful to point out here that there is nothing inherently criminal or suspicious in someone's decision not to talk to the media. Police say they asked to re-examine Stephen's van. They'd searched it in the days after Jalik's disappearance. Stephen refused to allow it. Stephen Kerr and his family moved to Vermont after the announcement of the van footage and the declaration that he was a person of interest. It was about four months after Jalik disappeared. Natalie Wilson of the Black and Missing Foundation says Jalik's case is in their database. She says one of the Foundation's main objectives is pushing to get rid of the term runaway. The classification of runaway should be prohibited, especially when it's a child, and there should be dedicated resources to finding them. Chief George Bell and the Cambridge Greenwich Police treated Jalik's case as a runaway initially. Chief Bell said to me on more than one occasion that he had uh, a tremendous amount of regret about how he initially handled the Jalik case, which was to at first do nothing. Reporter Dan Higgins says he asked Bell if he could do it over again, would he do anything differently? He always wished that he had handled it differently, but doesn't know under what circumstances or what would have caused him to behave differently than he did, but he wished that he did. And I really believed he was sincere about that. In February of 2008, Jalik had been missing four months. That's when a letter arrived at the Times Union. It also came to other local news outlets around the same time. It was anonymous, postmarked from Westchester County, New York. It was typed, riddled with typos and improper grammar. It read, Jalik still alive, needed a foot soldier for this war on drugs. Picked him up, Route 40, Post 30. He's okay, no fake. He says he asks his mama and papa, who are the Macaroni family? My cat named Diamond. Why does Franti yell fire? Don't try to look. We are not there. Next time on Rainwalker, The Lost Boy. We'll continue our deep dive into the investigation of Jalik's disappearance. Have you come to terms that Jalik is probably dead? Yes, yes. I feel that he was killed uh, on November 1st, 2007.
Rain Walker, The Lost Boy is a Times Union podcast. This series was produced and edited by Wendy Libertor and myself, Jessica Marshall. We had help from Lauren Stanforth, Susan Mahalik, Lori Todd, Erica Smith, Tom Crocker, Jeff Shearer, and Casey Seiler. Special thanks to Dan Higgins. Archival report footage came from local stations Albany's CBS 6, News Channel 13, and News 10, and from Find Our Missing. Our theme song is As You Make the Bed by Amos Noah. If your child or a child you know is missing, call local law enforcement immediately to make a report. For more information on what to do next, call the National Center for Exploited Children at 1-800-843-5678 or visit their website at missingkids.org. You can also reach out to the Black and Missing Foundation by calling 877-972-2634 or by going to their website at blackandmissinginc.com.